1: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat, how's our old mate Jason going? I hear he's
3: doing fantastic. In fact, he just keeps selling so much dog gear to our loyal listeners at such remarkable prices. What's he got? He's got, um... <laughs> That's a good question. Oh, he's got everything. Balls, yep. tugs, leashes. I don't think balls and tugs should be said in the same sentence. Well, oh, we just did. Okay. Uh, Mills. That's what Jason's pumping out like hot little bits. The firepaw mills. Firepaw, got, HF mills. HF mills, yeah. Yep,
1: he's got them all. Yep. Um, and we've done sleds. that mills episode yep. on Patreon. So yep. a lot of people are learning about how to use the mill. Yeah. And getting them from Jason. Getting them sells from Jason?
3: Sleds now.
1: Sleds and yep. parachutes, I parachutes, said that you tested with Remy. Tested the parachute. Yeah. Yep. I can confirm it inflates. I know he still doesn't have a website. I know he does not.
3: <laughs> so if you'd like to buy something from Jason, could be a Herm Springer item. Yeah. Uh, you could get that from Jason, but you have to do it through Facebook. And in order to do that, you have to head to Einswick Dog
1: Quip, which is how do you spell that? E I N Z W E C K. Einswick. Einswick Dog Quip.
3: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today, after, what are we at now, 19 minutes of difficulties getting connection, we have Mr. Mike Suttle on the line, all the way from, it's Virginia, right, Mike? West Virginia, I think. West Virginia. West West Virginia, where the internet is thin. And so Mike's in his truck using his 4G connection
1: there. So we're hoping that we can keep him the whole way through. Mike, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
1: And I think you're sitting in like a subclimate degrees down there, aren't you? Like you're in snowstorms and all sorts of stuff?
0: Yeah, the last couple of weeks of weather has been pretty bad here. Below zero Fahrenheit and, and 40 mile an hour winds and it's been pretty bad. Although today's looking like a pretty nice day outside. So
1: it's on the up and up. So when you do get temperatures like this, Mike, how does it affect your business? Because primarily these days, you're doing a lot of development work with your dogs. I gather that you've got large indoor spaces.
0: We do. Yeah, we've got a pretty big indoor training center here on our property. And I have access to a schoolhouse that's 500 meters away from our door. So uh, although that building isn't heated, it's it's still indoors. Mm -hmm. And we've got the state fairgrounds that we can go use if we need to. So it impacts things a little bit, of course, because we try to do as much field work as we can outside, but if we have to go indoors, we have a couple places where we can make that happen.
3: Mm, nice. Hey, so speaking of business, Mike, we um, on the show, you know, we love to do origin stories, and if if you can, can you take us back all the way to how did you get started in dogs? That's the kind of thing our listeners love to hear about. Is watch your um, kickstart. Yeah. yeah, experts in the field. How did that come to be?
0: Yeah. So. You know, like every kid growing up on a farm, we had a dog, and I was bored out here, so I, I had not, not a lot to do. So I, I played with the dog and made some progress with him and got—I was pretty interested in that from an early age. I was in a—I don't know if you guys have any type of 4-H or, or FFA, Future Farmers of America, in Australia or not, but here there's a couple programs for young kids in school who are, you know, maybe going to become farmers as they mature or whatever, so— I was a member of 4-H, and they had a, uh, a, a dog training program, if you will. And also with uh, FFA, I ran uh, a sled dog, a Siberian Husky breeding kennel when I was in high school in FFA. Cool. So my original dog background was in, in uh, border collies with livestock work and Siberian Huskies with sledding. Uh, and that's all I did as, as a dog, you know, in the dog world until I went in the Marine Corps. And then I got involved in the military working dog program. Mm-hmm. I did do IPO. I shouldn't say that's actually not entirely true. The The year before I went, uh, my, my senior year of high school, I met a an IPO trainer and I kind of shadowed him around. I didn't even have a dog at the time, not a proper dog to work in IPO. But I shadowed him around and, and got just interested enough. I did a little decoy work. And then I went off to the Marine Corps where I I was introduced to the military working dog program. Mm -hmm. And that's when my my passion for dog training started to steer towards the working dogs.
3: Cool. So when you joined the Marine Corps, was that into like the infantry? Because I remember you saying once that you were a, a marksmanship instructor, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, I was not a military police officer. Therefore, I was not a canine handler. My primary job for the Marine Corps, what I went to school for was to pack parachutes. Right. Uh, there uh, Aviation life support equipment. So we worked on uh, EA6B. Yeah, parachute rigger. Exactly. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a shop filled full of Marines. So there was more personnel in that shop than what we needed to have. So I was able to go and do a another secondary job as a rifle coach uh, at the rifle range. It's uh-huh. called a, The Marine Corps calls it a FAP. Typically, it's it's not something you want to do because generally you'll get FAP from a job you like to the fucking chow hall or something where you don't want to be anyway but yeah. i was able to go to the rifle range which is where i felt most at home and when i was in the rifle range is where i did meet a lot of the military police officers and then through that i got hooked up with some of their canine guys and started going over and hanging out in the kennel and was able to kind of without being a handler i was able to kind of hang around with some of the guys at the kennel and and uh do a little bit of rudimentary work with those guys and because I was so passionate about it, they kind of took me under their wing and let me go hang out with them. Ironically, my first real experience with Military Working Dog program was with Royal Australian Air Force up in Darwin. Yeah, my right. First deployment there, we were really bored up there. There was nothing to do. <laughs> and so I had, you know, essentially all.
3: Couldn't all day, pop into Rook's uh, Drift. In That's. My own
0: shop to do nothing where I could go hang out with the. Uh, I could go hang out with the raft guys and, and shadow their dogs. So. Yeah.
3: And were you were you packing parachutes so, there, or was that uh, a – I probably
0: did early on? I did as much military. W-
3: was that a riggers task? That? That in, was that a riggers task you're in Darwin for then, or was that a, a rifle instructor day?
0: I was there with my unit VMAQ4 uh, as a rigor. Right. But but they didn't have when we were there. We were one of the first units there. They didn't have. Uh, the base was was pretty bare bones yeah uh they didn't have a range set up yet so there was not a whole lot for us to do there yeah right we played it, football and hung out at the pool <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's what you do in darwin <laughs> and so you were yeah. you were hanging out with the air force guys back then
0: yeah they had from what i remember they had mostly tervurins back then and you know, I don't want to offend anyone who may be listening who was a member of that unit, but the dogs were at that time, this would have been in nineteen ninety three.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, from what I remember there were there were mostly tervirans there. I don't and, and Shepherds. I for sure I didn't see any any tight coated malawas. There were from what I recall mostly tervirans then. Yeah, right. Um and, and not not super high quality dogs, if my <laughs> memory serves me
3: <laughs> correctly. But
0: But they were doing the best they could do with what they had. And I'm sure by now their program has gotten exponentially better than it was then.
3: Yeah, they got a pretty good program now. And so when did you decide that you wanted to leave the Marine Corps? Was that that you had a job in dogs to go to or that you had just had enough of being in the Marines and then got out and then ended up going into dogs?
0: Actually, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went to the Motorcycle Mechanics Institute. Yeah, right. Well, I I got out of the Marines... I got out of the Marines in January, and I worked as a ski instructor that winter until about April, and then I went into the I went to school in Florida to be a motorcycle mechanic. Uh, my GI Bill paid for it, so it didn't cost me nothing. And I went to Orlando, Florida, to the Motorcycle Mechanics Institute, and I worked as a pro motocross mechanic for a couple of years. I also had a dog then, though, and I and I was getting involved back involved in IPO and actually had a proper dog then to train so i worked as a pro bike mechanic for about two years i don't know if you guys ever watch motocross or not but i was i was davy Millsap's mechanic when he was riding a kx65 and an rm80 okay um davy Millsaps, of course later went on to be a a, a honda pro motocross rider supercross racer and but uh anyway i did that for a couple of years uh and then i came back home and i and i ended up partnering up with Matt Aikenhead from uh, Signature canine and that's really when my working dog career kind of took off you know we were primarily we were manufacturing and selling police canine equipment mm-hmm. and we were traveling to seminars all over the United States and everywhere we would go to do a seminar or I'm sorry to, to set in on a seminar to vend and sell our equipment you know I, I was learning from all the instructors there, and we'd always travel with our own dog. So I had a chance to start training with, uh, with some pretty good people, you know, some of the best in the industry. And then what I discovered is as we are going to some of these military bases and local law enforcement uh, departments to show them equipment, I was always traveling with, with my personal dog. And oftentimes, uh, you know, I would get asked, yeah, you know, the, the sleeve is interesting. The bite suit is interesting. The muzzle is interesting. But where can I get a dog like that? You know, where can our department get dogs like these? And so from that, it was kind of a natural progression to, you know, once we decided to sell the equipment company to Ray Allen, uh, the natural progression was to no longer sell the equipment, but to actually sell the dogs. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of when it really started to take off.
3: And so that's when you, you started uh, sort of acting as a vendor. Did you I've always – I've heard you tell that story or similar before. Did you actually sell that dog, that one you had, did he – he was your personal dog at the time. Did someone offer you enough money for him?
0: There was never one necessarily one particular dog. You know, I, I usually traveled with several dogs, ah, okay. but, uh, the, the first dog that I, the first dog that was the most that, that I really liked a lot. Uh, I actually did not sell that dog. I, he was a little old to be of, of real value to most of the people that were interested at the time. He was already five years old. Right. Um, But, uh, but I, but I had several, you know, I always traveled with that dog and then I would have, you know, an 18 month old dog that was up and coming, you know, in the crate next to him. And that dog was always available for sale. And that dog was always different about every time I would go because he would have been sold at the last place I went.
3: Yeah. 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 Um,
0: and so that's kind of what, you know, what happened is I would, as that dog, as the first dog was getting older, then, you know, just when I had him about right where he was worth looking at. A department would be needing a dog and have a budget, and I would be needing the money, so I would sell them, and I would start over. And and that's kind of how it started. Mm -hmm. I guess that's how it starts with everyone, probably.
3: Yeah, that slow, natural progression is usually the best way. When you hear about some people who just decide, I'm going to become a vendor and go and buy a batch of dogs, it it really really works out for them that way, right?
0: Yeah, no, I don't know anyone who's been able to stay in business that way. I know a lot of people who have tried that that way, and not many of them have made it.
3: Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. You've done many, many, many buy trips to the to Europe, right? And have a, a huge network over there, and and are a guy sort of well known for being able to put your hands on the the best dogs available. And I know that's getting harder and harder. What was that first trip to Europe? How did, how did that come about? Who did you link up with there?
0: So I met. A guy named Gerben Campus. I guess probably close to 20 years ago now. Gerben's a third-generation KMPV guy, and he's a hell of a nice guy. He's a real likable fella. And my first trip over there, uh, I went over and bought some dogs, and I was testing dogs on that club where Gerben was at. He and I are about the same age. We were both pretty young then, and, uh, and we just clicked. You know, we just we had the same views about dogs, a kind of similar training style. We'd never met before, but but by the end of that first day, we were joking like, you know, we're we're long lost brothers, you know, like we were nice. we shared a lot of common interests outside of dogs, and we both really got along with. It. And I just got a feeling from Gerben right from the very beginning that unlike most of the other European guys that their only real goal is to take your money mm-hmm. and maybe get you a good dog and maybe not, but they for sure want to just get your money. That was yeah, the impression yeah. that I kind of had from the from my first trip over there, except for with Gerben. With Gerben, never for a minute did I think he was ever even remotely about getting my money. With Gerben, I just had a feeling that this is just a hell of a good guy that, that likes me and genuinely wants to work with me. And almost instantly, Gerben and I had a friendship that very quickly turned into a business relationship. And and to this day, he's he's one of my better friends, and I and I, I trust him a hundred percent. And so Gerben was was really instrumental in in my in, in introducing me to the right people very early on, and and showing me where to go to get the right dogs. I knew the type of dog that I wanted, but I didn't know, and I knew that most of the ones I liked. Weren't to be found in Holland, but mm-hmm. I didn't know where in Holland to go. And, and certainly if you don't know where to go, you'll find yourself at the wrong place looking at dogs that probably aren't as good as as they should be. Yeah, I think, but, you know, I, I attribute a lot of my early success in meeting the right people, at least to to Gerben for sure
3: you could probably speak to this a lot. Well, definitely can speak to this much, much better than me. But for a lot of our listeners probably don't understand that sometimes the best dogs that come out of Europe, are there, it's not like they're in this big kennel somewhere where you go and test all the dogs. I mean, that exists, but usually the best dogs are found in people's homes, right? Like you'll actually need the contacts to know, I know this guy down the street who has this phenomenal dog and maybe for the right money, he'll part with it.
0: Absolutely. You're a hundred percent right, Pat. I, as a matter of fact, I can probably count on one hand if, if I let's just say I, I'd have to go back and check the numbers. And I, I don't even know if I want the IRS to know how many <laughs> really came in. But, you know, let's just say that for argument's sake, I've imported 500 dogs, which is a modest number. I mean, maybe it's been a little more and it hasn't been a lot more than that. I'm not, I'm not a guy that imports 500 dogs a year. I know there are people who do that and, mm-hmm. and I, God bless them. I wouldn't even want to do that. But of all the dogs that we've imported, Whatever that number is, I can probably count on one hand the number of, of like you know those those three percenters, the ones that everybody wants to wants to have, the dog of a lifetime. And we've had several of those, but probably less than five of those came from a big commercial kennel in Europe. Mm -hmm. All of the other ones came from a guy down the street that nobody knew except for the neighbor who saw him walking the dog. You know what I mean? Like they're. Mm -hmm. The best dogs I've ever gotten were always from the guy that raised him from a puppy that was, you know, he was 60 years old. Now he's got a broken foot, and he can't get the dog titled, and it's a hell of a nice dog, and he doesn't want to sell him to a vendor yeah. in Europe. Speak- he wants him to go to somewhere where he's going to – I'm sorry.
1: Speaking on that, Mike, who is the current most memorable dog that you've had?
0: You know, there's a few that come up. There's not many. There's a few that come up. I think the one that left the most impression on me was probably the dog, a Dutch shepherd named Dukas, that I got from Evo Hovers. He was a Chesto son, big Dutchie named Dukas. Guys, this is going back a long time, but his pedigree was uh, Chesto on the top and a dog named Nora on the bottom. And that dog was a monster in terms of power, probably the strongest dog I've, I've ever seen. Not only the strongest one I've ever been fortunate enough to purchase but the strongest dog i've ever seen but i only had the dog for a short time because i bought him under a contract for the navy i was actually over there shopping for dogs we bought him and he was already sold before i had a chance to realize how damn nice he was otherwise i would never have sold that dog (laughs) but i i bought that dog and sold him you know in the same 20 minutes but i watched his career unfold when he came back here and, and i and i I got to say that was probably the strongest dog that I've ever owned or, or possibly ever seen. But maybe not the most complete in terms of being a usable dog for the business because he was a quite strong dog. Now, he was only 20 months old when we bought him uh, and already a very, you know, like a very strong dog physically and mentally. A dog that was not an easy dog to, to train but was a pleasure once he was once he was trained.
3: Mm-hmm. And he went to the teams, did he? But-
0: he did, yeah. He went to the to the West Coast teams, and is a legend. If you they, they changed his name, his name was Dukas when I sold him. They called they referred to him uh, to him as Duke. But if you ask anybody on the West Coast team uh, about a Dutch Shepherd named Duke, uh-huh. uh, or or who who the strongest dog they remember in their career was, I don't know that I've heard anybody out there who didn't reply with Duke yeah, as, right. as the strongest okay. dog they can remember ever having. The the best dog I ever owned here was probably a dog that I got uh, from Hank Edom named Evo, but he turned out to be one of the worst producers I ever had here. So, you know, he was a hell of a nice dog, very, very easy dog. Anybody can manage him. He was a a normal strong dog, Not, not over the top strong, extreme hunt drive, one of the best hunting dogs I've ever had. Good environmental nerves, fast down the field, nice, correct grip. Very, very nice dog. One of my favorite dogs I've ever owned. But I bred him a half a dozen times, and I don't think I ever got a Yeah, it's
3: such a, it's such a bummer when that happens, right? When a dog just is a, a freak.
0: absolute crazy, yeah, you know, yeah. So so disappointing. I was so hopeful to get that dog was going to be my, the next Arco kicker here, my kennel, but he just wasn't. Yeah. But the dog that I had the, the most success with, uh, in terms of of a producer. Was a direct son from Django, a dog named uh, Rudy from Allerton Selig in Holland. Allerton Selig, or from Selig's home.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, It was a Rudy Pulsar son. I'm not sorry, a Django Pulsar son. His name was Rudy. And uh, that dog was the most complete dog in every way. He wasn't as big as Dukas, so he wasn't physically as powerful, but he didn't know that. Everything that dog did was 100%. And so... You know, those are probably my top three. Ducas probably being the most physically powerful, the one that the hardest biting dog I've ever had, dogs that anybody could handle on any level. I could sell the dog to a, a ninety year old search and rescue lady and she'd have success with him. Mm-hmm. And any team guy in the world would, would immediately buy that dog and be proud to have him as a as a tier one multi purpose canine. It was just that 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 user friendly and that multi purpose of a dog. And then Rudy that was just absolutely the most intense streamer I've ever seen. Most athletic as well. And that dog was a prolific producer as well. I like That was one of my best producing dogs.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, unfortunately, that one died of cancer when he was like five years old.
3: Oh, no shit.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you just can't
3: win for losing.
0: Yeah, it was a shame. Um, I've got some really nice daughters from him and access to a couple nice sons. And I've got a half-brother to him now That's that's a hell of a nice dog here that That we'll be using for this year a lot.
3: Nice. It's a it's a funny one. Like I, there's a lot of the names that you say there. You know, famous Malinois that I think, or, or Dutchies that maybe a lot of our listeners might not know. Django is probably worth talking about. Can you elaborate on him a little bit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. In my opinion, you know, and this is just one one man's opinion. I normally refer to Django as the most influential producing dog in holland for the for police for the police dog program and probably for the kmpv as well but
2: mm-hmm.
0: when i'm testing dogs i very seldom will go out of my way to drive across holland to test the dog based on his pedigree right mm-hmm. you know if i'm in the area and someone says i've got a nice dog i'll go test it if they say it's a son from anybody else i'm probably not going to drive that far to look at it unless somebody can give me a, re- a recommendation of the dog But if I'm in Holland and someone says, I have a Django son, I'll drive 10 hours to test them, (laughs) even if nobody's ever heard of the dog. Yeah, because there's that good of a chance that the dog will pass my selection test. Of all the dogs that we've bought in Holland, the one who's, you know, the, the, the sons of Django have, without a doubt, the highest percentage of success passing our our selection test. Without, I mean, and not, even a, not even a close, no, there's not even a close second to that dog.
3: Who is Django's father?
0: Django's out of a dog named Max, and Max is a son from Duco.
3: Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But before we go too far down the Duco path, because I've seen lots of good dogs from Duco as well, we've all seen good dogs from Duco. And in my opinion, what makes Django so special is not so much the fact that he's a Duco grandson. But it's the fact that he's a Ruto Volpin grandson on the bottom side. Mm-hmm. Django is is a grandson from Rudo, and of course Rudo goes back to Rambo van Rossen. And I think that is where that is where history was made, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. with Rambo. Now Rambo's before my time. But I, I don't think it's I think Duco is certainly a contributor to make Django what he is. But in my opinion, it's Rambo and Rudo on the bottom side that makes Django what he is. Which is what brings me to the, st- the dog I'm using now, which is Manny, who's a direct son from Django. But on Manny's mother's side, Manny's mother is a dog named Quincy, who is also a rudo Vulpin uh, grandchild. Mm-hmm. So I, I really think that, that the, the Rambo-Rudo influence is what made Django great. I think Duco contributed, but I think Duco gets way too much credit for for <laughs> uh, for Django's abilities. I think Django's abilities are just as much from Rudo and Rambo than they are from Duco. That's just again one man's opinion.
1: So, Mike, just on on this, when you bring these dogs in from Europe, Holland, prolifically, like let's say for example with any of the dogs like Duke, do you get any access to them for breeding, or are these dogs just extensively used for a working role and that's it
0: (laughs) we'll have to talk about this when there's not cameras going Uh, yeah Uh, (laughs) uh, yeah the the official government the official government answer is the government owns those dogs outright and when and the government owns them uh no different than a than a government firearm that you can't just walk in and, and borrow for the month the government owns them the government owns the breeding rights to them and and that's That shouldn't be questioned when they retire, they're supposed to be spayed or neutered and then they're retired with their handler. Uh, sometimes maybe when the retirement date rolls around the veterinarians on vacation and the dog makes it out of the system without being spayed or neutered. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Maybe sometimes that happens. Maybe sometimes, you know, the, the dog is running loose and you pick him up when your dog is in heat. Maybe that happens, but, but, uh, (laughs) it's difficult to retain breeding rights when those dogs go into that system, which is the biggest problem because those guys are looking for the best dogs in the world. And when we find them, the best dogs in the world, they're immediately removed from the gene pool.
1: Mm, That's the problem.
0: That has over time that has a big impact on the, on the future offspring or, or the future dogs that we can select from.
3: Yeah. For the people listening, it would be the same effect as saying like every Policeman, fireman, army guy, special forces guy is no longer allowed to breed. Before too right. long, it's going to be hard to find guys who can or any do super that job. Athlete. Yeah, super athlete. It's going to be difficult to find anyone who can do that job because they're not that
1: gene pool. You're washing just out the genes. Away. Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And so, the, the, yeah, that is a. The, and this is, I think, this is why we're starting to see these dogs disappearing from the world. Like if you go back 20, 30 years ago, these dogs were, there was one on every block. And uh, even in Australia, you know, like we haven't been as luxurious as other parts of the world as far as having access to amazing genes in, in dogs, but we certainly did have them. And coming from a Rottweiler background, I think back then I probably saw better working style Rottweilers than I do now because I think that the dogs are just been washed out.
0: I agree completely. It's funny you mentioned Rottweilers in Australia because, remember, I told you at the beginning of this, I was not that impressed by the Raff Tervurens that I saw in Darwin in 1993. Mm-hmm. I went to the gym in Darwin in 1993, and there was a guy in the gym who had a Rottweiler in a downstay outside the gym, and. When I walked in, I, there was only one other guy in the gym who I didn't know, and so I assumed it was his dog. So we got to talking. He went out and did a demonstration with me with that Rottweiler. It was ten times better than any Rottweiler I had ever seen in my life in America, <laughs> mm. and it was way better than any any dog the Raff had in their in their in Darwin in their kennel. Yeah, that dog was impressive. Impressive enough that I remember him from 1993.
3: Yeah, um, yeah, and you've had some dogs. You've you've probably passed through some dogs yeah, between now and then.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that was just some random Rottweiler in Australia that, that was a fucking monster.
3: We, like, we, uh, we've had that comment a few times about Rottweilers in Australia even now in that like in our PSA club, we had two Rottweilers, one uh, both get through the PDC, and I think you've seen Neville's big Rottweiler tank that I think is as good a dog as well, one of the better dogs I've ever seen in this country regardless of breed
0: yeah it's a nice dog for
3: sure yeah and so you see that you see a fair bit of that here when people say like and i like I, I totally get it i feel the same about many breeds when you say oh i've got a nice dog but he's a he's a rottweiler and i go okay well comparatively he might be nice yeah right, right, right. <laughs> and then when they bring him out it's like oh actually wow he is a nice dog uh, and i think we face that here in australia quite a bit i think you know someone did a decent job along the way in preserving that it still wouldn't be what you would agree with glenn as being what it was 20 years ago no
1: it's 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 somewhat uh diluted since that time but 30 years ago uh you were looking at some amazing working rottweilers i mean there were people back then that were that was the focus back then is the focus and the desire of those dogs was the working style of rottweiler But now, like most things, you find that the the shift has gone predominantly to the show side of things where people are more, the the preservation is based on the look of the dog. I know some people might listen to this and feel a little bit triggered and perhaps insulted that I'm saying this, but fundamentally, if if they do a deep dive on it, they can't deny that that's where the direction of the dog is headed is more about a good looking dog than a good working dog.
0: Yeah, I agree. I see that everywhere. I mean, look at the German Shepherd breed.
1: Oh, um, don't possibly. even go there. What happened at um at the at the Croft show with that shepherd that was running along its hocks. That was just hideous. Yeah. But I think I, Yeah,
0: that's that's really really a shame.
1: Yeah. It's it's terrible what's happening there.
0: You know, even Dobermans like in the United States, you I, you're, you're hard-pressed to find a good working Doberman, and I'm I'm sure there's going to be people, listeners that that argue when they hear me say that, but I've just not seen them if they're out there. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But that that lady Suzanne in Australia, yeah, has a Doberman that's as nice as any Doberman you'll ever find anywhere in the United States, and I don't know if that's normal if that's a good Doberman for Australia or a normal Doberman for Australia, but if that dog were in America, it would absolutely be one of the best Dobermans you'd ever see,
3: yeah, well, and it's a it's a pretty legit dog, regardless of breed right like that dog is um, I agree, yeah. It, that, that's the, that father of that dog, Tim's dog. I can't remember the actual dog's name, but it's, it's, there's a few of them out there from him, you know, it's, um, it's, he's reproducing that over and over.
1: Yeah. That's Tim Powell's uh, that's
3: dog. Yeah. I talked, mm. I
0: talked talk to the owner of the guy that owns the styre to that, to Suzanne's dog at your place. Yeah. Last time I was there. And, and I don't think for a second that he was bullshitting me. And he said, Mike, Suzanne's dog was by no means the best dog in that litter. Yeah. And that's impressive. Because that's one of the best Dobermans I've ever seen.
1: <laughs> yeah, the sire of that dog, the guy the guy that owned it, uh, Tim, even at 10 years old, that dog was still legit. Like he was a very – and I, I spoke to him. I said, I hope you've got semen preserved from this dog because he is unlike many Dobermans that I've ever seen in this country. I said, he's a genuine dog. And he said, yeah, look, I've, I've used him a few times. And I said, mate, just make sure that you preserve him. And I said, because dogs like this are vanishing from the earth as we speak.
3: Yeah. Yeah. True. Hey, Mike, I want to talk about detection stuff as well. But before we do that, if you have anything to add to this, I just wanted to explain, you know, people, when we talk about those dogs going into the military and police and whatever, and from a gene pool perspective, we would say they're essentially, they're extinct, they're, they're vanished, they're dead. Now they can go on and continue to work for sure, but they're not going to be bred. And I know when we are saying that there'll be someone kicking the dashboard saying that, you know, the army have their own breeding program and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like I always want to point out to that and, and respectfully point out is, you know, what you just said about Django and maybe the power comes from him from Rambo Van Rossum rather than from Juco. And, and it's a combination thing rather than like that kind of knowledge people in the defense force or the police and around the world typically don't have because they got, uh, that's not their, It takes an obsession, right? Like to get to that level of knowledge and and to see that many dogs and to travel around and see them. So while they might be breeding their own dogs, the the breeding isn't as purposeful as as you would do and you don't have any restrictions other than what you can't breed from. You don't have like, these are the only dogs I can breed from because these are the ones in my kennel. So they're the decisions that you make, whereas you have the – like you might seek out a dog in order to make that breeding. I just feel like I always need to kind of – give that the, the attention it deserves? Because I, I know people saying, well, because the Australian Air Force has a breeding program, for example, right? And they do the best. They do a reasonably good job, but they're not doing as good a job as Logan House Kennels, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, I had this discussion with Stuart Hilliard at the Lackland Air Force Base at the U.S. DOD Dog Breeding pro School. Uh, I mean, at the, at the dog school. And they have a pretty big breeding program, a really big breeding program.
1: Mm-hmm. Where, actually, the, um, where the Super to- Dog Program was started
0: yes sir Uh, i went down there in october and did a seminar for those guys i've been down there in the past and i wasn't that impressed with their program when i was there 10 years ago and i'm honest and open with it and i'm not trying to insult anyone no different than when i said in 1993 the royal australian air force program didn't impress me Mm -hmm. but that's a hell of a long time ago they've made a lot of progress since then yeah if i was at lack when i was at Lackland doing my first seminar 10 or 12 years ago their dog program did not impress me when I was there last October, it was a complete same guy in charge, but he has made light years of advancement. And now his program impressed me and he brought out five or six young dogs from his program that I would buy and be proud to have in my own kennel. Mm. When I was there 10 years ago, I couldn't find a dog in their kennel that I would even feed. <laughs> I and mean, then maybe that's, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but yeah, yeah. but it's, it's, you know, now they've got dogs that that are good, usable dogs that are going to have success. Mm. Um, so the programs there, their program is getting better. But that guy has devoted his entire life to studying pedigrees. And he has the luxury of buying semen from wherever he, he wants to go to get it. And And for that matter, he can buy the dogs directly. You know, he's got he has access to pretty deep pockets through the government where he can, he can buy the dog, whether it's for sale or not.
3: Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um,
0: and, and he can certainly buy the semen and store the semen and, and select, he can breed whatever he wants, whatever that produces. And over, over the last 12 years, that's what he's done. And he's got a program that's respectable now that I really was impressed with.
3: Yeah. Well, time is the, is one of the essences there, right? And leaving somebody in that position for long enough to have an influence and look at genetics over over multiple generations rather than rolling the dice and seeing what you get for this generation and then trying again, something totally different.
0: Yeah. But even still, we talk about the success that he has that still pales in comparison to the number of dogs that he needs, right? They need 700 dogs a year or more. Wow! And if he's doing well, he can produce 50. Wow. You know, so there's still a big void there. He, he may produce 700, he may be able to produce 700 puppies, mm-hmm. but he cannot possibly produce 700 quality working dogs per year to fill that need. So he, they, they're still forced to go out and buy dogs for their program. That's a huge thing. And, and their number. program is completely different than, than the tier one programs who don't even have interest in, in starting a breeding program because they know how much time that takes. And that takes away from all the other shit they have to do. They're... They're way better off going out and buying a three-year-old, getting a few deployments out of him, retiring him and starting again with another three-year-old. Yeah, That makes way more sense than putting all their effort in breeding and then two or three years into, produ- into raising a dog to find out that it doesn't have what it takes.
3: Yeah, exactly. And even training the dog, they're, they're way better <laughs> off allowing uh, some expert to do that and then just handling the dog, right?
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely.
3: That's another funny one when you think about time. Like you imagine... Imagine an SF guy that parachutes into water, assembles his boat, transits through water, climbs a beachhead, you know, drives some sort of coop to a target, then has to be involved in a gunfight. And maybe at some point in that gunfight, he'll use the dog. In the gamut of skills to maintain all those capabilities, using the dog is such a tiny point of it. And as you see a lot of, uh, you know, high quality civilian dog trainers like, why aren't these guys better at this? And you're like, well... They've got a lot of things that they have to be very, very good at, and training a dog to to that standard is not is totally possible for them. But it's it's about time, at least. Yeah, Mm. and when their core skill is to be a gunfighter, and that's that's where the majority of your time and effort has to has to stay. I could whinge about that stuff for ages. (laughs) But so yeah,
0: no, you're exactly right. A lot of people don't understand that. You know, even the even the multi-purpose dog handlers. That's still number seven on, on the on the list of the 10 most important skills they need to have.
1: Yeah. Can I switch gears on this a little bit, Mike? I just want to talk about, and stop me if, if this is sensitive and you do not want to talk about it or cannot talk about it, but I just want to talk about the time that I first met you, the very first seminar that you came out here when Andrew first brought you into Australia. I didn't know much about you at the time. I'd heard about Logan House, but hadn't uh, had a extensive research into you, et cetera, until – I found out you are coming out, and then I started looking into you a little bit more. And just as you were about to come out, you were involved in a siege over in the Middle East. Can we talk about that, or is that something you would rather not?
0: No, we can talk about it. That's all public record, and it certainly doesn't impact me at all to talk about it.
1: Mm. Well, yeah, I was we actually – uh, yeah, go, go ahead. Tell the story, because I'm, I'm quite impressed that you actually still managed to come out here and run the seminar, even though it, it recently happened to you. So, yeah, I'd love you to – Tell the folks out there what actually happened to you at that time.
0: Yeah, that happened in, in uh, August, uh, August 10th, I believe, of 2015. Uh, I think I was out to you guys maybe in October. So I'd had a little bit of time, or September, maybe, I had a little bit of time to heal. But yeah, we were hit with a 1,000-pound uh, bomb at our front gate. And I was working at the front gate that night. It was about 10 o'clock at night. We'd already put our dogs up for the evening. Uh, because at 10 o'clock, we shut the camp down. There's no, no vehicle traffic allowed in or out unless it's U.S. Uh, troops going out on a mission. So there's no need for a dog. So we put all the dogs up. And so the dogs were back away from the front gate and the kennel in the rear. But I was still working down at the office that night about uh, literally probably 30 feet, 30 to 50 feet from the gate that got, that got hit with a thousand pound bomb. So it was quite a shock. <laughs> um b- bad enough to you know when i had a couple of hernias come from that it pushed me back against a concrete wall behind me and fractured my uh the c uh, c4 c5 something like that in my neck uh, i'm not a doctor so but it fractured a vertebrae in my neck and it totally deafened me it was it really ruptured my my eardrums and that, that was pretty bad there was nine of us at the front gate the other eight were Afghan national. Uh, you know, they were uh, Afghan nationals were working as as guard guards on the front gate there. Mm. And because we shut the camp down in an attempt to let those guys get some some PT during the night, we allowed them to play soccer in the chute when there's nothing else going on. So they were actually there was eight of those guys out there playing soccer. All eight of those guys were killed, and uh, I was the only one that was not out there playing soccer, and the only one that survived. So. We fell back to a, you know, I fell back to a defensive position up on a, a guard tower about a hundred meters inside the camp and got on a, a PKM, a Russian machine gun, and got on the radio and called, you know, to let the army know. But We had, we had 300 special operations guys in that, but at the same time, we still had a pretty big hole in our, in our front gate and there were insurgents pouring in with grenade launchers. So we needed to get that problem fixed. So yeah, I fell back to another tower about a hundred meters inside the camp and, uh, and got on a PKM machine gun, and I got on the radio, and and radio to the army to tell them because there's there was a few gates on that camp, and in all the chaos, they probably I didn't know if they were sure what what gate had been breached. Right. So, I got on the radio to, to radio to those guys and let them know where we were where the hole was at, and they responded with uh, you know some some big big armored vehicles and 50 cal's mounted on the roof and. You know, we were able to get things taken care of. But the problem was that south wall had about 15 cars parked along it. And the insurgents were coming into camping and, and hiding underneath those vehicles. And I didn't have thermal, and we didn't have MVGs. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: so when at 10 o'clock at night, when the, when the bomb went off, it took the generators out. So it was total darkness. It blew the glasses off my face. So I couldn't see that well anyway. So the only thing I could reference was their AKs and the, and the, the muzzle blasts from their, from their AKs. To kind of direct the army as, as to where the targets were at so you know they, they were able to hide underneath those vehicles and do a little more damage like i said we lost uh eight afghan guards in the explosion and and one u.s serviceman remember um sergeant uh, drew mckenna was killed in a gunfight there and then uh sergeant vera was was paralyzed from the waist down in a in a hail of bullets that you know they, they they got him pretty bad Mm-hmm. But uh, we were able to to finally get them all get the get the compound secure and go back to business as usual. But yeah, it was a pretty exciting night to say the least.
1: I think you got uh, shot in the back at that stage too, didn't you?
0: I did. Yeah, with uh, with a vest on. So that's uh, that, that's a lot different than getting shot without a vest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, the result is different. What I was most impressed about, Mike, was the fact that uh, even after that happened, only months earlier, that you still agreed to and came out and ran a, a working dog seminar here in Australia for your premier visit to to do a working dog seminar.
0: Yeah, you know, like I said, I wasn't my intention. Once I once the fight was over, I, I was content in staying in Afghanistan. I was I was injured, but I wasn't broken. You know, I mean, I was even the even the the fractured. Uh, you know, the, the fracture in my neck It wasn't that big a deal. It's not like my, my, my spine was severed. You know, it wasn't that big a deal. I, I certainly could have stayed there and continued to work. They were animate that I come back and rest. So, you know, I came back and rested for two days and was bored and ready to go do something. So it wasn't like I was. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I appreciate you giving me credit for being a trooper and going over there. But the reality is I, I wasn't that hurt. You know, I was I was I was banged up, but no different than being in a car wreck. And, you know. Wasn't that
1: big a deal? Well, lucky you're not a soccer player. I was just watching a clip the other day where a guy got flicked in the ear, <laughs> and he started doing like backflips and somersaults all over the floor, screaming in pain.
0: Yeah, those guys are pretty good actors. I'm
1: not nearly <laughs> that. <kind. laughs>
3: hey, so um, this is a good way to sort of come around to it. You were over there running the gate, like the detection capability, right? The bomb sniffer dogs. So. How is it that you came to be and you are so well known as a, a detection guru? Where did the training for that come from, and how did you develop the skills that you have there?
0: Yeah, so when I was over there, it was we had five canine handlers in Afghanistan, and I was assigned, I was just one of the five handlers. The other they were all great guys. I think I probably the was the only trainer that was over there, so I, I did organize some training there, um, that they you know, that they probably needed some guidance with, but whatever. I mean, they were, they were all good guys and good handlers, but they mm-hmm. just weren't trainers. And there's a difference between a handler and a trainer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was there at primarily as a handler, but I did implement some training protocol while I was there. Uh, we had a dog that came in that was allegedly fully trained. Turns out was not trained even a little bit. So we, had, <laughs> we had to get that dog up and going. So I, I organized the training program there and we got that dog going pretty well, pretty fast. But, um, my detection experience started here. I, I didn't here in, 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 my kennel. I, I worked with a girl uh, named Arielle Peldunas and I had done some, some detection training prior to that, but it was not on the same level. You know, after, after meeting Arielle, she really got me excited about detection again. And I learned a fair bit about detection from her mm-hmm. uh, and I learned enough to be hungry and, and to learn more. And then I started going out and training with with don blair a lot and i did a lot of work with don and, and so don is you know i mean i give ariel credit for getting me started in dete- and detecting for like firing lighting that fire about detection work you know and ariel is a fantastic detection detection dog trainer um, and i got real hungry and wanted to learn as much as i could and then i started working with don and holy crap you know stuff that i learned from don blair was just unbelievable and i to this day i still you know i give ariel credit where it's due but i'd be doing don at this Disservice if I didn't say that most of what I really know about detection came from Don Blair because that's the reality. It really did. Don is, in my opinion, Don's the best detective dog trainer that I've ever met for sure, and probably one of the best in, one of the best in the United States for sure, if not the world. I would say.
3: Mm-hmm. Does he run the Customs training unit? Is that that what he does? Uh,
0: he did. He he was assigned to Customs for like eighteen years. He, he worked there at Customs. I, I don't, I don't want to speak for Don, but I think he worked at Customs for sixteen or seventeen years, and then he left. And then he came back and he was when he came back, he was in charge of their breeding program for their detected dog program. So, you know, Don was one of their lead instructors at their school for, God, 15, 16 years, I believe.
1: Yeah, we'll have to get him on the and show and have a chat to him one day.
0: Yeah, he is. He is the man when it comes to detection. Like I said, I I attribute everything that I know that's all the cool shit that I know about detection. I learned from Don.
3: And at, at that facility that he was running, that's where they use scented towels, right? And they retrieve the towels.
0: Yeah, yeah. They they uh they do a lot of the the a lot of their early imprinting is done with the scented towel
3: yeah. method. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, and, we'll,
0: and we'll 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 go into that pretty depth when I'm over there. That's that's maybe not as easy to discuss over the phone as to yeah. <laughs> go in person. But uh, that that system, given the right dog, uh, as a matter of fact, today is a good example. We just got back from training uh, this today about an hour ago or two hours ago now, uh, I've got three young labs that we started training. They're all about the same age. Uh, two of them, we worked for about a month and then I bought the the third one. So, you know, two of them have about a four week head start on the third dog.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: but the third dog genetically is a little better. And using that system today was her third day of training and we are on day three we're doing point to points from 75 yards away and we are going into a barn and searching a hundred foot wall at a hundred percent success after tra- after three days of training wow um yeah it's crazy like the stuff that i used to do with with these malinois 10 years ago i i thought i was having success and, and i could i could get success but the speed at which I get success today and the degree of success that I get in the same amount of time is 10 to 1 better than it was with my malin was 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, right. Well, I'm looking forward to you coming out in May. There's quite a lot of people showing interest in that, including uh, some law enforcement groups, which I'm sure that, that it will be a massive benefit for their training program as well in, in detection work.
0: Yeah, I'm sure I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, it all boils down to, to having the right dog, though. You know, that's the, that's the key. I could take I could take the wrong dog and spend six weeks with this system and make no progress. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for that matter, regardless of the system, you're going to make the same no progress.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I, get, I guess that's one of the, the things right that, that most people overlook is that they want to do something which requires high demand in a, in a training outcome yet they're constantly selecting the wrong dog to do it which is fundamentally a problem it's like choosing an athlete to do perform in a in a certain task and having somebody that just doesn't have the skill but you like the person and you stand by them and think well I'll I'll just keep working with you where you've got prodigies that would be run rings around them in whatever skill set that you're trying to teach them
0: absolutely yeah that's the the sports analogy is the is the analogy that I, is my go-to analogy when we talk about selecting uh, the right dog for the types of jobs that we do, whether it be biting or detection. Um, You know, we talk about operant conditioning and classical conditioning, and that is science, and that is lawful, and that shit applies to every organism on the planet. But when we talk about jobs that require, you know, when we talk about detection and we talk about bite work, those jobs are, (laughs) you you, get, the requirement for the right dog is is very evident there.
2: Mm.
0: Um, it's not, you know, like I said, we talked about all organisms respond to operate in classical conditioning, and that's true. But we talk about bite work and detection work. Not all dogs are suitable for it, and not, not all dogs with good pedigrees are guaranteed to be suitable for it.
1: And, and that's in the and, elite uh, field, right? Because, I mean, look, you take something like nose works or something like that, is that – That's inclusive for a lot of breeds because there's no – I mean, look, it's important for people who are competing in it and and they want to do well in it. But if you're talking about somebody who's doing narcotics detection or explosive detection or something where lives are on the line, I mean, you need the best players in the game at that stage.
0: Absolutely. The best player doesn't mean it has to be a Malawak, but it has to be the right dog. Yeah, It has to have the right nerves. It has to have the right drive. It has to have the right athleticism and agility. And it has to have all those pieces. And, and and when you look at the odds of finding that in a random basset hound, they're pretty low. <laughs> the odds of finding that in a Malawa are greater, or or a good field trial Labrador, if it's just detection. The odds of finding that are greater when you look in the right place. But just because you're looking in, in, in a kennel full of Malinois doesn't guarantee that one of them is going to have that. Mm. You know, I, I can... I won't, but I can tell you of, I know of kennels that have hundreds of Malinois in them and you can't find a fucking dog there that'll work. (laughs) um, But, but you know, that doesn't mean that, uh, because Malinois doesn't mean it'll work, but the odds are greater than if you were shopping at a, at a, basset hound kennel
3: yeah I, I i find myself having that discussion with people a fair bit especially with people who are looking to get into protection sports and that sort of thing they might say oh i don't know if i can handle a malinois and i say well the the thing is it, you shouldn't get into it like because it's not that you're looking for malinois traits we're looking for a level of drive and whether you find that drive in a german shepherd or a doberman or whatever that's that level of drive. So if you're worried about the amount of drive that you might end up with from getting the Malinois, well, that's the amount of drive that you're hoping for if you get it in a Shepherd. So you, you, if you don't think you can handle it, well, then you shouldn't be getting into it. It's not you, you're, you're going down the wrong path. It's not about breed; it's about the capability. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Hundred percent. believe me. I've got I've got Labs here right now that are every bit as drivey and possessive and ambitious as any Malinois I have here. Mm. And they're just as difficult to live with and just as difficult to manage.
1: Yeah, that's but, it. But that's the dogs that succeed in that environment, that they have environmental soundness. They also have low distractibility. They've got – and they te- they tend to be the type of dog that with a family would end up in a pound.
0: Exactly,
3: 100%. You know, something on the detection and those point-to-point exercises that uh, you, you do and I've like I've seen your seminar talk about and watched your videos – it's something that I, I took away from the last set of videos you did recently. Um, with It was with a, a couple of labs and you were doing the towel sending stuff and you put it all online, which I thought was pretty amazing. I realized when you're doing that, and I, I'm sort of ashamed it took me so long to understand this so well and that a good detection dog is a dog that hunts, not identifies odor. Like Identifying odor is obviously very, very important, but there's no point teaching a dog like this is the odor if he's not going to look for it. And I think it, it, it took me longer than I... You know, like I, I think for me, it was always a case of like, here we go. I've got this dog. I'm going to start imprinting odor right away. Whereas it, it may be like, – and of course you could do that. But at the same time, got to be developing or at least if the dog doesn't genetically uh, – well, if it's there but you need to express it, that desire to actually search for the odor rather than just here it is. I can identify it. It's got to be it. innate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So we're – look, you know, I use the analogy all the time or I, use, I shouldn't say an analogy. It's more of an example. If I take – a litter an eight week old litter of malinois puppies and i put them in a size 500 plastic berry kennel and i drive them out in the middle of the field and i set the crate down in the field and i open the crate let's just say there's seven puppies in that litter all seven puppies are going to come out of the crate and immediately attach themselves to my pant legs and start pulling and tugging and and, you know biting my pants Mm -hmm. if it's a normal malinois litter if I take a Labrador retriever litter of the exact same age, the same number of puppies from field trial working, you know, working lawn labs, I take them out into that same field and I open the crate. Every single puppy comes out, puts their nose to the ground and starts searching. They have no idea what they're searching for. (laughs) They have no, no concept of, of anything other than, you know, God put me here on this planet to put my nose to the ground and so, and, and, and hunt. Mm. And that kind of sums up the difference. You know, when, when I'm looking at Malinois, when I'm testing a Malinois for a detector dog, most of them will play with a toy. Well, I mean, the ones that we buy, of course, obviously, they'll all play with a toy. But when we're testing malawas, most Malinois will play with a toy. It's it's the toy drive that gives us any hope that the Malinois is going to hunt. Mm because he's not going to hunt for the sheer satisfaction of hunting. He's going to hunt for the likelihood of finding his toy, right? Mm -hmm. The Labrador, so so therefore, when I'm testing a Malinois, if he doesn't have toy drive, he's got zero chance of passing my, uh, of making it through my program as a detector dog. But the interesting thing is with these Labradors, now I only buy labs that have high toy drive, but when I'm testing labs, Even if I'm testing one that has little to no toy drive, guess what that fucking dog still does? Still hunts. He hunts. He hunts his ass off, and he hunts not because he cares about finding a toy. He hunts for the sheer satisfaction of hunting. So when I take a lab that has over-the-top toy drive, I have a dog, assuming that he has good nerves, and that's important with labs because some of them don't have good environmental nerves. But when I have a lab that has good toy driving, good environmental nerves, I have a dog that will beat every Malinois in my kennel in a detection race.
2: Mm.
0: When I'm testing for Malawas, if they don't have, you know, the, the, the only reason they're going to hunt well is because it leads them to the toy. My labs will hunt well, whether it leads to a toy or not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So with your males, Mike, are you teaching them to be multi-purpose dogs or single purpose in, in that aspect?
0: Well, our goal with every Malinois born here is a, is a multi-purpose dog, right? Because that's that's where the the that yields the highest income. Yep. Uh, you know the the dual-purpose dogs we sell for more money than the single-purpose dogs. So as we're raising them, we're always trying to cultivate them to be dual-purpose, you know, prospects. Mm. If somewhere along that path they fail in the bite work, but they still have extraordinarily toy drive and they hunt really well, then we can we continue to work them and now we just shift shift gears and now we're going to try to make them a, a detector dog a single purpose detector dog but we never take a malawat and and set him aside and say you're only going to be a single purpose detector dog unless the wheels have fallen off in the biting phase somewhere along the way
3: have you had any experience with it going the other way like you get a dog that you go he just doesn't have the hunt drive for the toy, but does say for the man. And he just then goes single purpose in that way.
0: Oh, for sure. I see dogs with that, with that capability a lot. The problem is in America, there's not much of a need for that.
3: Right. Yeah. So those
0: dogs are often more difficult to sell just because of supply and demand.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe becomes a personal protection dog or something.
0: In fact, I, I have had most pretty recently, I've had a couple dogs in my kennel that they would play with the toy when they could see it, but if it disappeared in the weeds, they had no interest in going out and hunting for it. Mm. But if a man or the possibility of finding a man were out in the weeds, they would go out and search like an idiot. Yeah, It's not ideal, but certainly those dogs exist for sure.
1: Hey, I just want to mention a point before that Pat brought up is that there's plenty of online content that you've done through either your own name, Mike Suttle, or Logan House Kennels where you've shared a lot of your training content. And it's not just limited to working with biting dogs and detection dogs. I mean, you you run camps where you've got, you know, young students coming out from all over America. And I think you have probably had some people from over in Australia come over or possibly even other parts of the world as well. And you've worked with other fields such as training chickens, trained rescue dogs. I've seen that you have had little Jack Russell puppies out there and you've worked them inside your Skinner box, where I think you've been extensively and very generous and sharing a lot of that content online.
0: Yeah, I, I do share a lot of videos online. I think it's important to get that to get that information out there. I don't really have any secrets, you know. I mean, I, I try to, I try to share everything that I know. I I try to share it with everybody. I do that as a shooter and I do that as a dog trainer. I I don't. I'd rather I'd rather make you as good as I could. You know, I'm I'm pr- pretty competitive, and so from the shooting side, I wanna, I wanna make everyone around me, as good as I am, and then I wanna beat them. Because yeah, then if you I lift beat the them ceiling and they're not as, as well trained as i am what have i really accomplished mm. like i've withheld secrets that i know that they don't know and that's what allows me to beat them that's never that's not what i want to do i want to give you every secret i have maybe even give you a better rifle and then be and so with with dog training like i want to i want to share every secret that i have i want i want you to know everything that i know and then i want you to go out and be better than me and then i want to work hard to beat you and then I want you to work hard to beat me so I can then work harder to beat you again. And that's how we're going to get better.
1: Yeah, that's a great attitude. And, and, that's a really cool attitude.
0: Yeah, and I, still, you know, I, I share everything that I can. Now, having said that, I do have the bills to pay. So <laughs> uh, coming up here pretty quickly, we, just, we just, uh, just built a new website. In fact, we just turned it on like a few days ago. We're still having some glitches that we're trying to work out. But sometime in the very near future, we're going to start another video series uh, where I am going to be a little less generous. I'm still going to provide the information, but I'm going to make somebody open their wallet a little bit and pay us about $10 a month to have access to it. But the access they're going to have will be far greater than the access they've had to anything I've published up until now. Well,
1: mate, that's that's so cheap think, money for somebody who's a world-class trainer.
0: Yeah, I think $10 a month is that's about all I'd pay to watch me, so that, that's why.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, the other thing I want to talk about, last time you were here, you were talking a lot about spending some time with Bob Bailey because he was doing one of his last student seminars where you were fortunate enough to get an invite. Can you tell us about that?
0: That was fantastic. I went up there, and I didn't, I didn't uh, win the competition. It was kind of set up as a competition. He selected uh, 18, 18 students that he had had over his career and all 18 students we had to submit video you know um, submissions and had, you know of, of us training dogs and then, and then he he selected from this pool of trainers and he picked the 18 that he that he wanted to to work with at this competition and then we all went up there and we competed over a two or three day period and then he would he picked the top two to go on and help him teach a class a couple months later i did not make the top two Uh, But I learned a lot there, you know, and I was I always want to be the dumbest person in the room. Right. But, you know, so there when I went up there with Bob and those other 17 trainers, I was absolutely the dumbest person in the room. And that was a great experience for me, because no matter where I looked, I was learning something that weekend. You know, the problem is the more experienced you become the more difficult it is to hear something that you haven't heard a dozen times already. Mm -hmm. And when I was up there, that was fantastic because I I got this, I was just exposed to 17 world-class dog trainers and I learned a ton from them. And maybe some of them learned something from me along the way as well, but, but it was a, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. Uh, It was fantastic. It's one of something that I'll never forget.
3: When you say it was a competition, Uh, having
0: Bob there to, to work with us,
3: when you say it was a competition, what did that look yeah. like? Like what were you actually doing?
0: Yeah. So I, I use the term competition because I didn't have a better way to explain it. And, and that's ultimately what it was, right? We were all competing uh, to impress Bob the most. <laughs> so they say you and you are the two that I want to help. I want to help teach uh, my next class with. And so what that was is we went up there and it was a, the Coventry school for dog trainers. It was a, a big world-class dog training and, and doggy daycare and a, Really nice uh, training facility up in Maryland. Great people run it. Very very nice facility. And we went in and we drew straws, or drew numbers actually. And the the number that you drew corresponded with a crate in the back that had a dog in it, and that was your dog. Wow. Uh, for the class, you didn't you weren't allowed to bring your own dog. You were assigned a dog when you got there, and these were pet clients' dogs. So the playing field wasn't exactly level to start with, because if we have, you know, if I draw a dog, that has got great nerves and lots of food drive and lots of desire to work. I can make more progress with that dog over three days Mm -hmm. than you could make. If you drew a dog that was really shy and nervous and no food drive and no desire to play with a toy and just wanted to avoid it, avoid you at all costs. Right. So my initial, my initial thinking was, I already am starting at a big disadvantage because I have a dog here that doesn't have much drive and it's, it's really nervy. But the reality is after working a couple days there, I discovered that the dog was not even really a big part of part of the equation. Bob just wanted to watch how you interacted with the dog. Mm. So what we did is he, he divided, he divided us into teams of three. There was 18 people. So there were six groups of three and in that group of three, we had 10 minute rotations. So you have 10 minutes. One of the people in your group gets, gets their dog out for 10 minutes and we, and we train it. That leaves two more people in your group. One person is a coach and one person is an observer. And so while you're training your dog, one of the other people is coaching you on how to train the dog. And you have to be, you have to show your willingness to, accept their coaching and follow their coaching style, even though it may differ from your own training style. Hmm. So you're training through them, right? They tell you to do this. You then demonstrate your ability to do that correctly. And then the observer is taking copious notes. And at the end of this 10-minute session, we rotate. And now I'm the coach, and someone else is the observer, and someone else is the trainer. And then we rotate again. And then when everyone has had a chance to go, we go back, and we sit down, and we debrief. The only person that's allowed to speak is the observer. Wow. So I can't comment on what was happening when I was training. I can't comment on what was happening when I was coaching. I can only comment on what happened when I was the observer. So now I'm critiquing the coach and the trainer. It was a really interesting dynamic. And at the end of the day, I discovered that it really didn't have much to do with your ability to train a dog at all. It was about your ability to take, to take coaching and to to be really observant and take good notes and and articulate what you had seen and explain that to other people. And so what it was is exactly what it what it was intended to be. It was picking the best coach and the best instructor to help Bob teach. Mm. And and I believe that the people that won were exactly that. I, the two people that he selected were absolutely better teachers and better coaches and better. Observers and were able to articulate better than myself without a doubt. So, I don't feel like I got short when I when I the dog that I ended up with, Pat, ironically, was a little Springer, but it was certainly not like your Springer. (laughs) Let me tell you,
1: Um, I don't think there's anything like Pat Springer. What's that? I don't think there's anything like Pat Springer.
0: Yeah, I I wish I would have had Pat Springer up there. Uh, Let me tell you, the the one I had was had no drive and no nerves.
3: Yeah, right. It,
0: It looked. It looked like a springer, but it certainly didn't get the message on how it was supposed to behave as a springer.
3: <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. But,
0: but it really didn't matter because like I said, the dog training portion of it was, was the what he was the least and what Bob was was watching the, the less mm-hmm. the, the least of.
3: That's a that's but a pretty good
0: I don't feel I don't feel like I got
3: cheated at all. That's a pretty clever system he came up with. It's mm. it's almost as though Bob Bailey really understands behavior. <laughs> Funny about that. <laughs> right. Yeah,
0: it, it's interesting. You know, I, I feel like I will say, you know, the the one feeling when I left there, I thought Bob absolutely chose the right people, but I feel like it wasn't my ability as a trainer or a coach or an observer that knocked me out of the running. I feel like it was my ability to get along with with conflicting opinions and conflicting attitudes, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, everyone so there was really nice. That's I, what I'll I... give you an example.
3: Sorry, go ahead, mate. But that's what I wanted to ask. Like, who did win and what were their backgrounds?
0: Uh, one of the guys that well, I don't even know the name. I can't re- recall the names of the people that won. One of the people that won was from Chicago, a younger guy, younger than myself. I think his name was Mario, perhaps. Uh, he was a student to, to the science. Like, he could regurgitate every paper written by every animal behaviors that's that's written a paper
2: mm-hmm.
0: and he, his timing was impeccable his ability to read a dog was fantastic but his his understanding of the science was was about as good as you'll ever meet anyone in the industry i i know he he was one of the ones that were selected the thing is at the end we left there we didn't know who won all we knew was two weeks later we're going to send out the announcement and if you don't get it a, a notice then you didn't win, but I found I, I found out through the grapevine who did win. He was one of them that was fantastic. The other one was a lady. I watched her. I was very impressed with her, and I don't know her name.
3: <laughs> okay,
0: but uh, I, I can find that out though.
3: Oh no, it doesn't matter. I was just curious.
0: But one one interesting thing is, I was a coach during the the training protocol. So so my one of my trainers was supposed to the dog she had. Uh, It was a a giant schnauzer mix of some kind, a big dog, pretty drivey dog, really, really social, really forward behavior, like a great, great attitude, right? The dog you could actually make some progress with. And it was a pretty drivey dog, pretty good play drive. So she decided she was going to teach her dog to grab a string on a bucket and drag a bucket 10 feet. We we had a, had a, a handful of behaviors that we could pick from, and this is the behavior that she chose for this dog which was probably the right behavior because the dog had the drive genetically naturally to pick up something and run around with it. So we could have probably got this dog to pick this string up and drag this bucket, you know, five meters pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm the coach. So I have to coach this lady on, on how to get the behavior. So as I'm trying to coach her, I thought, you know, this is the one thing that I'm actually probably more experienced at than anyone here. Right. Which is, channeling drive to bite something and make it move (laughs) so so i suggested to the lady that she hold the dog back on a back tie let me stimulate the dog with the rope tease it a little bit build some drive and then we'll give it a couple misses and then we'll let it smash into the rope and that's how we're going to start to teach this dog to bite the rope in my mind that made very good sense she had a different plan she didn't think my suggestion made sense so rather than holding the line and letting me frustrate the dog and build up a little drive she didn't want to put the dog on a leash at all she wanted the dog to run around loose and you know halfway chase the rag and halfway be or the string and halfway be interested in the other stuff around and you know so I I voiced my frustration that maybe you know like trust me when I tell you if you hold the leash and we build some frustration I can make this dog more interested in this rope she had a different opinion and so you know right away that I, I didn't make the progress that I was hoping to make
3: yeah that's a tough one when some it is your area of expertise, you, right? Your ability. I'm sorry, go ahead. That's a tough one when it really is your area of expertise.
0: Yeah, you know, I still, like, I left there feeling like I could have got that dog more excited about the rope than she did. But I also left there and didn't get a letter inviting me back. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: then for one far, she,
0: she didn't either. So I guess we both lost out.
3: <laughs> it sounds like a pretty uh, awesome experience for sure.
0: It was fantastic. As a matter of fact, I have have since started modeling some of my classes around that. In other words, it's great if you're in a position like at our place where we have 10 students, but we're only working maybe one dog at a time. The other nine students are watching this unfold. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really easy if you're not training or coaching or observing to kind of check out and start texting on your phone or, or surfing the Internet or whatever, waiting for it to be your turn. But if I if there's accountability now and now my students say, Well shit, Mike's gonna ask me questions or expect me to regurgitate what, what's happening here, or Mike's gonna task me to coach and be an integral part of what's happening here. Now all of a sudden my whole class is innately involved in what's going on and they're not just one or two people watching and six people texting on their phones anymore.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the perfect evolution of a really great trainer is that what they do is they cherry pick from the best of their experiences and they combine it in their skills and knowledge to develop a program that's organic, it's ongoing. They never stop adding to it. So, I mean, I've worked with some fantastic people before that have had a mindset on a training style or or a specific way of doing things, but they've always added the adage that, I can change my mind at any time and review my, my material and alter it to suit the clientele that it it should be targeted towards.
0: Absolutely. And that, like I said, you know, with me, I, I was, I thought I was pretty good at detection 15 years ago. I was doing it. I was having success at it. I learned from a few other people and I felt like I was as good at, at, at applying it as they were. And then I met Ariel. And I was like, holy shit, this lady knows more about detection than I do. Mm. And so I opened up and I learned as much from her as I could. And then we parted ways. And then I thought, okay, now I know more about, thanks to Ariel, I now know more about detection than I did. Yep. And then I met Don Blair. Well, I had already met Don Blair, but then I started really working with Don Blair. And once again, I was like, holy shit, I don't know anything about detection. Mm. And then I started working with Don and I opened up again. And now I can confidently say... Without a doubt, thanks to Don and thanks to Ariel and thanks to the other people before that. I know a lot more about detection today than I did five years ago. Yep. And ten years ago and fifteen years ago. And I hope that tomorrow I meet someone that knows way more than Don. And I'll open up again and I'll learn as much from them as I can. But I I, I believe that it's gonna be hard to find people that know a whole lot more than Don. <laughs> I, I don't know where Don goes to learn at this point. I mean he goes to Bob Bailey and learns a lot about animal behavior, but when it comes to detection, I'm not sure where he goes to learn.
3: Hmm. So you're back here in May,
1: three day seminar this time. Third of May to the fifth of May.
0: That's right. Yes, sir. And looking forward to it. Yeah, wait so are we. We're
1: there. really looking forward to seeing you again.
3: And what was it? it's one day of sort of bite grip development stuff and two days detection? Yep.
1: So what I will add to that yep, before I think Mike-
0: guess what Glenn had, had
1: what I will add to that before Mike chimes in is that anybody who is struggling with their detection work, whether you're just a, a student, shouldn't I shouldn't say just a student, whether you're a student of NDTF or any other field, whether you're in nose works, whether you're doing it for, for personal reasons or whether you're industry related, if you're not getting along to this seminar to learn from Mike, you're really missing an opportunity to learn from somebody who I consider one of the titans in the field of um, fantastic work. I've got a lot of respect for Mike, um, not just because he's on the line, but when I first met him and saw what he was doing, I know that exactly what he's been speaking of before. He's a student of the world. He opens his heart and mind to researching his field. He's very enthusiastic about it, very professional, and uh, a hell of a guy to learn from. So do yourself a great service and uh, make sure this is not just because I'm running it, but because it wouldn't matter if anyone was running it. Andrew Dar brought you out. The first couple of times and I just had the good fortune that was here where I live that I got to attend the seminar, meet you and, and uh, include you as one of my friends. And it was great fortune. I'm Like I said, I can't say enough nice things about you because not just because I, I mean it, it's because you've earned it as well.
0: I appreciate that. And I feel the same way about Australia as one of the few places that I travel and I come home and, like, and I really have to think back. I don't think there's a person over there that I met that I didn't really genuinely like. You know, certainly when I go to Europe or other places or Afghanistan, I, I, I can get a big list pretty quick of people that I don't <laughs> like. But, but, you know, I leave Australia every time and I just meet more and more good friends and I have yet to meet someone that I didn't like or couldn't get along with. And that, you know, that's why I love going over there, because you people are great, really nice, really, really accommodating. You know, I just feel right at home there and I love it over there.
3: Well, mate, when you're here, we'll have to get you back on again where we'll, without a Skype connection that drops in and out, and we'll have a few beers and we'll we'll have another another chat.
0: Yeah, that'd be fantastic. You know, and I, and I hope that I didn't I didn't turn any viewers away when when I'm talking about the importance of finding the right dog to do the job. That doesn't mean if you're sitting over there thinking about coming to one of our seminars in May uh, in Australia and you and you don't have the right dog, that doesn't for a second mean I don't want I don't want you to come there because I really think you can. I have several systems when when I'm, when I have a goal in mind, I'm looking for the right dog for this goal. And in my world, this goal is top level tier one performance. But if I have a goal of, of canine nose work, and I have a goal of only keeping one dog at a time. And I have this dog that's seven years old. He's got four years of useful life left. I'm not going to get another dog, but I have this goal of nose work. I have a system for you that will help your dog regardless of breed regardless of drive get better towards achieving that goal i have another system that maybe your dog won't work with that will work great for another type of dog and i have yet another system that may work for another type of dog and i'm happy to share all those systems so uh you know if i get there and i have 15 students with 15 different completely different types of dogs and you watch the first few dogs use one system, don't think, well, shit, my, my dog doesn't have a chance. I'm just going to change systems. We're going to grab another system for this dog and maybe use another system for this dog. So I think, I'm hoping that I can teach everyone something regardless of the quality of dog they have or regardless of what their goal is with their dog.
1: I think everybody that attends it, Mike, will come away better for it, definitely. That's my opinion anyway because, I mean, I certainly did with – I picked up quite a few – Essential components just by watching you with your grip work and then uh, watching you do your skinner work skinner box work with your detection
0: Yeah, you know one day is not going to be hopefully hopefully for the people that are coming for the first time because I know this will be the third time I've been over there and and I probably will see a lot of familiar faces but for someone who's never been there I Want you to come with an open mind and don't don't come and expect one day of bite work is going to fix all of my problems, or two days of detection is going to make my dog Mm. certification ready. What I want you to do is come with an open mind, understand that these three days is not about training your dog, not even a little bit, right? It's about training you. Mm, Good point. And if I train you, you now have the rest of your life to train your dog. But if we make it about training your dog, I only have three days. I'm going to train your dog as much as I can for three days, and then I'm going to leave, and you're going to be stuck with only applying what, we've, what we worked on for three days with your dog. So don't think about, you know, we're going to make my dog profoundly better in one bite session. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to make you profoundly better so that you can apply that to your dog for the rest of his life. And that's the way I approach all my classes, with the exception of my four-week class or classes that are longer in duration. Now the expectation is we're going to train your dog to be certification level in four weeks or six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever. And in doing so, you're also going to learn a hell of a lot. But the primary focus there is training your dog and you together. And our short classes, I can't possibly train your dog to do anything in one session, really. Yeah. Um, but I can train you to do a lot. And that's, that's kind of how I try to, to, to structure all of my classes. So
3: Mate, that's hopefully so that's makes it a little bit more That's what I want to use that as a soundbite whenever we're talking about seminars. And we've Mm. spoken about it many times. And like when I'm running seminars, I don't like to charge the same amount for working spots as normal spots because there's this inference that if I pay more, I'm going to get my dog trained. And it's like the truth is actually your dog's just going to be used for demonstration purposes for everybody's benefit. In fact, this is exactly as you say, your dog might even uh, go not go backwards, but this is not going to be a super beneficial session for your dog. This is the problem you have is not going to be fixed. The, the thing you want is unlikely to happen, but we're going to use your dog to demonstrate the process in order to get that. And hopefully you can do that in your own time later.
1: Yeah, you're not being given a fish. Exactly. You're being taught how to fish. Yeah.
0: It, exactly. If you remember, Glenn, the first time I did a seminar at your place, there was a very nice retired police officer with his retired police dog. And we we're talking about how I teach an out.
3: Mm-hmm. Roger um, Mayer. You yep. Know, and with he Jed. said,
0: you know, mate, my dog RIP. is, what's that?
3: Uh, Roger with his dog, Jed. But I think Jed uh, passed away about a year
1: ago or something, didn't he? Yep. Jeff. Yeah. Jeff it was. Jeff. Jeff. Roger and Jeff.
0: Yep. A big, big German Shepherd. Yep. 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 Very nice guy. Very nice dog. And he said to me, you know, Mike, I'm skeptical to believe you'll ever get my dog out. For eight years, he never outed once <laughs> in, in, the, in the department. I, I could never get him out. And in two sessions, we were able to get that dog to out. But all I did was teach the system. Like, that doesn't mean that dog now has a reliable out, and tomorrow he'll out no matter the circumstance, of mm. course. But we were able to use that dog to teach the system to, to demonstrate how I go about it. And that's a good example of what I mean. We, we, we kind of taught the dog to out in that context the, on that day but we didn't really teach him to out, but I did demonstrate the system in which we approach it. Yeah. You, and could, that's, you that's showed how it could be I achieved.
1: Yep. To. Yep.
3: And then it's up to him to to continue to do that yeah. as time goes on.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: Hey, I reckon we'll wrap it up there, Mike. Hey, thanks so much for um, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And, mate, I'm I'm excited about you coming back here. I'm looking forward to catching up with you. Before you go, tell everyone where they can find you online if they want to look at these videos that you're talking about, the ones that you've already done, and this new paid content, which I'm excited to hear about what's what's the website, how do people get involved, all those things. I was just wrapping up saying, how do we uh, get in contact with you? Thanks for coming on the show, but how can people get in touch with you and see your new website and that kind of stuff?
0: You can go we, – we post a lot of videos and, and class schedules and our travel schedule on Facebook as well. Um, either my personal page, Mike, Mike Suttle on Facebook or uh, Logan Haas-Kennels on Facebook. And those are uh, – we have a Twitter account. The girls run the Twitter account. I, I honestly don't even know.
3: <laughs> yeah, we're the same.
0: Like. Yeah. But uh, Logan is the is the website and then Logan Haas-Kennels on Facebook.
1: Hey, before we do leave, Mike, are you reading any good books at the moment?
0: <laughs> I, I, you wouldn't believe how many books I've read since the last time I, I talked to you, Pat. Oh, really? Um, uh, yeah, uh, the answer is zero. I've read zero <laughs> books since the last time I, we, we were over there, and I doubt that number will change between now and May. <laughs> and, and believe me, I don't. I don't. I'm not bragging about that as if it's a good thing. That's one of my biggest weaknesses. Is as I. You know, growing up in West Virginia, I did, in fact, learn how to read, uh, but I just I I just can't force myself to read a paragraph without my mind. I have the attention span of a nap when I when I sit down to try to read something. I just can't force myself to read. I, I would be so much smarter and so much better off in life if I did read. But I just can't make myself do it. People ask me all the time what book do you recommend for training bite work or detection work? And I'm like, ah, shit, I, I, I don't have an answer. I've never read a book in my life about any of that.
3: <laughs> Perfect answer. I love it. I love it. All right. Hey, we'll wrap it up, Mike. Thanks so much. Looking forward to seeing you soon, mate. Oh, Glenn, before we do go, where can people – how are people going to buy tickets? What's the deal? Uh, so
1: I'm just about to put the uh, Eventbrite link up. That will be within the next within this week. So there will be links to purchasing tickets for the Mike Suttle seminar, which is, again, those dates are May 3rd to 5th. So it's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday date. We're really looking forward to having him out, as we've been saying. Please, like as I said, if you're having any trouble in grip development or if you're having trouble or you're interested and curious to learn better techniques and scent detection, this is definitely a seminar that you, you want to put it on your high priority list.
3: All right, that's it. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Doing that helps more people find us and spread the word. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. A few bucks a month gets you access to an an extra episode a month and 10 bucks a month gets you like a live Q&A session. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via Facebook. We are The Canine Paradigm on Facebook, or you can send us an email to info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it. Glenn, music.